What have I gotten myself into? We've all had that thought about something in our life. We may have started a new job, and in the interview process, we had some idea what this job would entail, but then when we started the job, it wasn't anything what we expected. You know, maybe you watched one of these home improvement shows on cable TV, and you decide to go in and gut your bathroom and remodel. And then you find out it can't be done in half an hour. Right, Kenny? Maybe, more seriously, you jumped into a marriage without realizing what was really involved. Maybe you're a Christian or you're thinking about becoming a Christian and you haven't really given true consideration to what's involved in committing your life to God. The fact is, God wants to be in a covenant relationship with you. He wants to adopt you as his child. But he lays forth principles for us to understand before we make that commitment. And let me say from the outset, this lesson is not meant to discourage anybody. I hope you'll see. Making the decision to serve the Lord is the best decision you can make. The purpose of this lesson is just for us to have a realistic understanding of what is going to be involved. Chris read from Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. And for the sake of the recording, we'll reread it now. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We have to count the cost, as Jesus says it here. We think it's ridiculous for someone to build a house or build some building without thoroughly planning the cost. Sometimes you'll see a house out in the middle of the field Foundations laid, it's partially framed, and it sits there for years. It's a monument to poor planning, not being, not being able to see the project through. Have this illustration of a king that's going to decide that he's going to go to war, but he doesn't first sit down and see if he's going to get slaughtered in that war or if he's going to prevail. Common sense dictates that we understand and evaluate the cost involved in a project before we undertake that project. And Jesus says we have to do the same thing about following him. The reward is absolutely worth it, but don't be deceived into thinking, into thinking that God is going to make everything better in your physical life, that troubles are going to go away, that job issues will go away, that issues within your family will go away. In fact, it may be worse here in the flesh. There will be challenges but ultimately, those challenges will serve to our good. So this morning, I want us to study and consider this concept of counting the cost. What is going to be involved 
in us committing our life to Christ. If you're not a Christian, I certainly hope that you will you know, think about the things that are said here. If they're consistent with Scripture, you know, understand this is a commitment. It's going to be worth it. If you're a Christian and you've forgotten that this is a commitment, you know, let us be reminded to each of us uh, that commitment is required. Sacrifice will have to be made. The first thing that we're going to notice is that you, you need to prepare to lose your life as you know it. Prepare to lose your life as you know it. In verse 33, he says, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In verse 26, at the end of the verse, um, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own, and he lists several things, at the end of the verse, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We can have discussion on what hate means, and whether it's Jesus using hyperbole here, or whether it's the usage of uh, if it's similar to the way it was used in the Hebrew, just to mean to love less. But the point is, Jesus is going to have to be above all others. Jesus is going to have to take the number one place in our life. In Matthew chapter 16, in verse 24. Matthew 16 and 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think a lot of times we've read this verse where if we lose our life, we'll find it. We simply think that means that if we're martyred, if we're killed for following Jesus. And that's certainly an aspect in which it's true. Jesus also has in mind the idea that we're going to surrender who we are. We're going to give up our identity in our old life. We're going to follow after him. I think it's going to be important for us to not seek comfort in this life. John warns us in 1 John chapter 2 to not love this world. And that is going to be a radical paradigm shift for us. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possession, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We can't love the things in this world. They're not permanent. They're going to go away. Second, uh, in Second Peter... Peter points out that all this is going to be destroyed. When the Lord comes back, all the material things will go away. 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 8. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Some versions say will be burned up. These things are going to be gone. You can build a house. You can have a nice car. You can build buildings if you own companies. You can build buildings. You can have great possessions, but at the end of the day, 
is going to be gone. There will come an end. So let's, at this point in our life, lose our lives. Let's surrender to the Lord's will. It's all going to go away anyway. Let's surrender to Him. And along with that, we can't long for the old life. It's disappointing sometimes. You, you hear Christians describing their past life almost uh, with an affection towards the past or some sort of longing uh, towards the past, how things were so good back then, where, you know, back in that day, you know, we could drink, we could, you know, do whatever, and almost a sense of longing. And th- there's a difference between recognizing where you've been with, with gratitude that the Lord saved you and then boasting about your old life as if it was somehow better or more fun. And sin is fine. But we can't look back at our old life as if it's something great. It's interesting, if you turn back to Exodus chapter 14, Israel, I mean, very shortly, in the second month after they left Egypt, they looked back and longed for Egypt. In Exodus 14, they haven't even, they haven't even crossed the Red Sea. They're basically, you know, the, the Egyptians are coming, they're at the Red Sea, they don't see anywhere to go. Chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out in this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Israel looked back longingly to Egypt. And they rewrote history in the process. They're talking about how great it was. I mean, yeah, they had to serve the Egyptians, but they were full. They had plenty of food. It was just great. In chapter 1, we see what the Egyptians were doing to them. Verse 13, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And Israel says, we want to go back to that. It was so much better back then. Was it really better for them back there? They cried out to the Lord for deliverance for a reason. They were absolutely enslaved. They were being driven to bare bone. I mean, they were worked to death. They cry out for deliverance. The Lord brings them out. And they look back longingly. We can do the same thing if we're not careful. We can look back at our life before we became a Christian, and we can see how things were, and we forget that we were slaves of our own desires and our own sins. We were absolutely in captivity before the Lord frees us. 
and we have no right to complain and say, it, you know, it'd be better to just go back. When you become a Christian, there may be times where you feel like that, where you feel like, this is too hard. I can't do this. Understand, your new master is a lot better than your old. And it's going to work for your good in the long run. Sometimes you know, our physical lives here are better from serving the Lord. And there are certainly good things that will happen in this life, but sometimes relationships are permanently damaged in this life. Still, we have a better master. We have the perfect master when we're a Christian. Let's not go back to our Egypt. Let's not go back to our slavery and our sin. We can't long for the old life. In fact, Jesus told us in Luke 9 that if we're going to do that, we can't be his disciples. Our old life was leading us to death. We were a slave of sin. It was just leading us to death. Jesus tells us that if we look back, we cannot be his disciple. Luke 9, beginning in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to them, to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Are you putting your hand on the plow? but still looking backwards. It's a basic fact that we can only focus in one direction at a time. When we're working on a project, at least men, I can speak for us, we have to stay focused and we want to accomplish our task and get it done. We can't look in multiple directions simultaneously. We have to look at what's at hand and proceed. Same thing with the Lord. Once we put our hand to the plow, once we undertake this business of serving him, we can't look back. We can't look back at the old life. And thirdly, I suggest that we need to be prepared to accept new priorities. We need to accept new priorities. We mentioned that we were slaves of sin. But when we become a Christian, God redeems us. He buys us. And makes us his servant, his slave. First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine, nineteen through twenty. First Corinthians six, nineteen and twenty. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We were bought, we were purchased, but the Lord now owns us. You may not realize it, but whether you're a Christian or not, you have a master. You're either a slave to your desires, to your own sins, or you're a slave to God. We don't, we're not truly free people in the sense that we have no master. 
We're being bought by a new master. He has different priorities for us. And it's interesting, this master will actually adopt you as his child, too. You're a servant, but you're also his child. And he wants to raise you as a son or as a daughter. One of the things that is a hard realization is that God's goal for us in this life is not to be happy. We see discussions, we hear discussions uh, about any number of topics. And someone will look at what the Scripture is telling us and say, I have a hard time accepting that because I know that the Lord wants me to be happy. The fact is, the Lord... The Lord wants you to be holy. If you do his will, there will be ultimate joy and fulfillment and happiness in the long run. But he calls us to be holy. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God is that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. It's understood in America that we have the right you know, to pursue happiness. We have the right to life, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Interestingly, they don't actually say happiness, but the pursuit of. But regardless, pursuit of happiness cannot be our goal if we're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It's more important that we pursue the things that our king and his kingdom prescribes. We're a citizen, if we're a Christian, in God's kingdom. I'm grateful to be an American citizen. I'm far more grateful to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Happiness is not God's overarching concern for us. If we make, if we make it our purpose and our aim to follow him all of our lives, our troubles will be greatly reduced. Certainly we'll grant that, but that is not his overarching goal for us. I think we'll also find that success is, is defined differently. With, success is defined differently when, when we become a Christian. If you ask most children, what is their goal in life? I mean, what do they want to do? What do they want to be? Most of them haven't really thought about decades and eternity. And so you hear things like, I want to be a fireman. I want to grow up, I want to get married and have children. I want to grow up and be a teacher. And and those are all good things, but sometimes, as adults, those are still our goals. And when we become a Christian, our ultimate goal is to do whatever we do to the glory of God. That's what we're put here for. When we're not a Christian, our goal in life may be to get into a good school, get a good job, uh, raise children that are self-sufficient. You know, those are all not bad goals. But understand that the underlying goal has to be that we're serving the Lord, 
that our success is measured by whether we have faithfully obeyed him and served him. It's different than when we're in the world. You know, what it means to lead our families looks different if we're a Christian versus in the world. Your goal for your children will be different. The fundamental goal for them will be different based on whether you're a Christian or not. We've got to prepare to accept new priorities once we accept Christ. He wants us to accept them. We should, but understand, there will be changes. It will, it will require a paradigm shift. It will require renewal of mind. And finally, it's important to understand that we need to prepare to suffer for this choice. There will be difficulties that come as a result of choosing to serve the Lord. The fact is, some will fall away in times of trial. We won't turn there, but in Luke 8, we had the parable of the soils. And that rocky ground, it had enthusiasm for a time. It sprung up, but then it withered when trials came, is what Jesus said. When trials came, that withered away. In fact, this suffering can occur for multiple reasons. It could be our own mistakes or our own sins. I mean, if, if we feed our bodies awful things for decades and we don't exercise and then we end up with obesity-related disease, I'm, you know, I feel bad for you and I, I love you and care for you all I can, but that's not suffering in the sense that you're suffering for being a Christian. Some suffering is due to our own choices. Some suffering happens because of our, of our own sins. Um, when young people um, are intimate before marriage, physical consequences can result. There can be a new person born into the world, and that is just a reality. I'm not calling a baby suffering. You've got to be careful how I say that. But I understand that there are physical consequences uh, to our actions. But sometimes suffering for the sake of righteousness does occur. Sometimes you will actually suffer for the sake of righteousness, I would just caution us to not develop a persecution complex and assume that if you got hard times, it's because you're a Christian. Not necessarily. But on the other hand, Peter does tell us to not be surprised when we suffer for the sake of righteousness. First Peter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised when the trials come. They are going to come. There will be difficulty. There will be people lying about you on the job, trying to, trying to sabotage your work and block promotion. There will be people who become your enemy that try to harm you as a result of being a Christian. Your own family can desert you. Your own family can disown you. It's such a sad thing that we saw with Georgia. She's not here, so um, everyone talked about it Wednesday night, so I feel okay talking about it a little bit. It's just so sad to see what happened in her family as a result of her choice to serve the Lord. That's hard. I, I know Georgia didn't want those relationships be damaged. She didn't want that, but it happened. And it, my understanding is it was because she chose to serve God. 
Your family can treat you differently. Paul told Timothy that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And it may or may not be like some of the Christians in the first few centuries suffered of physical imprisonment and death and torture. I mean, when you hear reports about Christians being burned alive, being sown in animal skins, those are things that they endured because they were Christians. And we may not have to suffer that, but there will be persecution to endure. And if people don't give you a hard time, if people don't mistreat you, it raises the question, are we truly different? Are we truly a light shining? Are we really setting the kind of example that we ought? Because we're going to suffer persecution if we are godly in Christ Jesus. The fact is, it doesn't matter how well-educated you are, what schools you went to, how intelligent you are. When you become a Christian, there are going to be a lot of people that think you're a kook in a nut job. No matter how intelligent you actually are, they will regard you as a kook in a nut job if you become a Christian. That's part of it. In James chapter 1, we looked at this a little bit in class this morning. Our ability to endure and persevere is enhanced through trials, through sufferings. Verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our ability to persevere is going to be enhanced through this. Remember that whenever you go through things, whenever you go through trials, you, your ability to endure and persevere will be increased. And tied in with that, if you need wisdom to get through it, ask God. Beginning in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God gives you a promise. If you're his child and you want wisdom, particularly with how to deal with trials, ask him. He's promised, I will give it to you. Go to him. There will be trials that come up. There will be suffering that comes up. But go to him. He can give you wisdom. He can give you strength. And he has promised to give you strength. When we become a Christian, our life, as we know it, changes. It goes away. Or at least it's supposed to. And we can't look back and say, wow, things were so great then. They really weren't. Thinking long term, they really weren't that great. Even if they were, it's better now. You're going to have a different outlook on life. You're going to accept new priorities. And there's going to be some difficult things that happen as a result of you serving God. I really hope this lesson hasn't discouraged you. I really hope that it's helped us realistically understand what's going to be involved in being a Christian. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 beginning.
1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Here's why the suffering is, is bearable. This is why everything is going to be okay. 1 Corinthians 15 and 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's why it's all going to be okay. There will be challenges. From the world standpoint, they may think they have it easier. In some ways, even in this life, we'll have it a little bit easier. But even if we don't, we have the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that gives that to us. 